But you know something, Money Incorporated? The new song we've been training to goes just like this. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. The following rustic exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson. And today, be taking my first look at WWF Monday Night Raw, a little show that has endured now for nearly a quarter of a century. And we are going to go back to that fateful first year at the Manhattan Center for the March 8th, 1993 Monday Night Raw, a show that just felt completely different from what Everything that the WWF was doing at that time, superstars and challenge were in arenas that seemed to be getting smaller with each passing year compared with the golden era of the World Wrestling Federation. And here we have Monday Night Raw in the Manhattan Center. So you're in the big city, but you're also in a very small venue that doesn't even hold a thousand people. But first, let me get in my plugs here. You can email the show, greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greetingsfromallentown. On Twitter, give me a follow at Pod. Rate and review on iTunes, Apple Music, you know the whole deal. And you're probably listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only field. Give that a rate and review on iTunes as well. In association with Place to Be Nation, go to placetobenation.com slash Amazon for all your purchases. In fact, that reminds me. I need to buy a new candle for when I record because I th- having candles around for whatever reason helps me think. In fact, I'm looking at one right now that I never bothered to light as I record this. So I don't know what that says, but I like balsams for whatever reason. I like pine as my air freshener of choice. I went to the car wash about a week ago. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll upgrade you to the works for another dollar, and we'll give you a free air freshener. And I'm like, oh, do you have pine? And they're like, uh, they looked at me like I had six heads. Like, really? You don't have pine as one of your air conditioners? I, I had to take black ice, which I feel like is a weird name for a car air freshener, considering the fact that if you in a car, what you generally would fear during the wintertime, particularly in my area of the country, is black ice. I mean, that's why I have to spend $300, $400 on salt every year so that my driveway doesn't turn into a giant luge track. So yeah, that reminds me. Uh, buy, buy a candle so that I can think a little bit better for these little segues there. Yes, for the second week in a row, decided to go with the Brady Bunch as my TV theme of the week. That is from season two. 
you'll notice there is quite a difference from the one in season one, the Peppy Peppermint Trolley Company or whatever they're called. Uh, the, the, the Peppy outro from that first season, which has the scary thing at the end. Now, not only did I learn that it scared the hell out of a lot of other young people, because when I would hear that at the end of various TV shows, it was also used on Happy Days. Paramount shows had that from the late 60s. I want to say 69 through about 1975. They would play that. And it actually has a name called the Closet Killer Loco because it's the kind of music you would expect to hear if somebody was to burst out of the closet and come at you. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And then they tone it down for season two after changing the outro and removing the Closet Killer and replacing it with the more traditional Paramount thing. I have to mention this because I I did mention this on the Place to Be podcast, which was released on Monday night on the Saturday Night's Min event from January 2nd, 1988. I sat in with JT and Scott on that one. Do check that out on the Place to Be wrestling feed where uh, I had planned to do a running commentary of a Brady Bunch episode for April Fool's Day. And I never got around to it over the weekend, despite the fact that I have Good Friday off working for a mutual fund company. If the stock market is closed, I get that day off. So Good Friday is one of my favorite days of the year. But I like it better when it is warmer out, when it's in April. And I guess it was warm out here on Friday, it allowed me to go outside. Unfortunately, all my outside time, or at least three hours of it, was cutting up the trees that had fallen in my backyard from the recent storms. And by cutting it up, I mean with a handsaw. I didn't think to call my sister to see if I could borrow the chainsaw that they apparently have, and I didn't find out until I had them over for Easter this past Sunday. Like, oh, why didn't you call? I'm like, well, I didn't know you had a chainsaw. So really, how was I supposed to know? I'm just like, I got in some good arm work uh, working the saw through. These are not, I mean, they're birch trees for the most part, but some of them have a pretty good circumference and, and girth there. Let's say at least, uh, you know, 20 inches on the girth. It's, it's really sort of meaty. I can think of one podcaster who'd be turtling because I'm talking about girth and media and all that. But anyway, I don't want to get into all that. So a uh, lot, lot, of, lot of tree work. So I was telling the kids when they were here for Easter, if you want to help me out, you can bring some birch up the back hill and store it you know, in the woods there. But uh, I had no takers. Instead, they just decided to roll down the hill in the front of my house and get all muddy and stuff and... So uh, tell my sisters, like, look, I'm not going to stop them, okay? I'm, I'm afraid of that hell myself. I hate mowing it, and I wish I had bought a house on flat land sometimes, but I like it here because it's nice and quiet. <laughs> As I tape this, it's just past midnight on Monday into Tuesday, and it's just not a sound in the neighborhood. I feel like, I, I feel like I'm the only person talking for a mile around. And what I should be talking about is this March 8th, 1993 Raw. And these Raws, and I was talking about this 
with Mr. Rosero, who said he was a little sick of 93 Raws, but he's put himself in a lot of projects where he's rating and reviewing these sorts of things. I think he's watched a lot more of it than I have. And going back to these 93 Raws, they feel somewhat fresh to me. I would check in on the Raws in 93. I wasn't watching week to week, but I would watch it from time to time. And I remember thinking at the time that it was unusual that they were in this small building, not necessarily because they were in you know, the Hoosier Dome for WrestleMania 8, Silver Dome for WrestleMania 3, these big arenas. It was that they were in these arenas for their superstars and challenge tapings for years and years. And now here's this new show where they're in New York City, yes, so there's some prestige there, but they're in this tiny building with a great look with the overhang balconies and all that at the Manhattan Center. And that was the idea that they were trying to do. They were trying to do something different, which is so refreshing when you think about WWE now and how Raw in 2018 is pretty much the same set, the same format, the same everything as you remember from 10 years ago. I think the biggest change they might have made since, I don't know, 2002, would be going PG in 2008. Other than that, the format really doesn't seem to change. You come out, you have a lengthy promo at the top of the show, you have a commissioner-slash-authority figure who is usually a heel, sometimes a clownish baby face. So my point is, the fact that they were trying something different, I rather like that because... When everything is the same for as long as it's been, something like this is going to stand out. And I'm really glad that at least it's something different from what they've done. Now, they would try something, I guess, similar with Shotgun Saturday Night in 1997 with not as good results with the whole nightclub thing because they would effectively just make it an arena taping later on. And as Bruce Pritchard said on his podcast talking about the founding of Monday Night Raw and you know the beginning few weeks of it, it was a real pain in the ass doing the Manhattan Center. And when you say pain in the ass in Manhattan, you know they don't play Madison Square Garden nearly as frequently as they used to. And a lot of that has to do with union costs and this and that sort of thing. Also having the Barclays Center right there as a venue as well. It's a pain in the ass to do the Manhattan Center because apparently you had to bring the ring up some floors, which I had never thought about how you would have to do that in that building. I just assumed that it was like a ground level sort of thing and you bring it in, but apparently that is not the case. But at least it was a unique venue on television, you know, fun to look at, you know, really, really good, almost sort of made for wrestling, even though it's just sort of a ballroom or whatever. So different is good, at the very least, because I'm really kind of tired of the same old stuff on television. They do Raw, I guess, this past week at the Phillips Arena in Atlanta. And with all these new arenas now, they all kind of strike me as the same. I mean, what separates the Wachovia Center in Philadelphia from the TD Garden in Boston, other than I think Wachovia Center has a higher capacity by maybe 1,200 seats. Really not all that much. It's the same damn oval, same everything. Although 
Phillips Arena in Atlanta supposedly has a setup where most of the luxury boxes are on one side, which when it comes to interesting things about Arena is not exactly the old Madison Square Garden short entrance when it comes to capturing the imagination. So, you know, Raw in 93 is at least interesting to me because when it's been on the network, I've gone back and watched some of these and I've been hampered a bit by, especially for these early Raws, for a Mr. Rob Bartlett on commentary who I, he's really hampered my enjoyment of these early Raws and I think a good chunk of that has to do with the missed opportunity cost of we lose Bobby Heenan for a good two to three months that Rob Bartlett is in the chair doing commentary instead. I guess Heenan does some Raws where Savage has a match, like the infamous feud where Repo Man stole his hat and Savage has got to win it back or whatever. But the fact that we lost Heenan for a period in 93 and he didn't have much time left in the WWF, as it turns out, feels like, why couldn't... Rob Barlett have just stepped aside after the first show. So in doing this show, what I'm making this vow that I kind of want to be fair to Rob Bartlett. I have a desire to hate him immediately, but in doing this show, I've found myself surprised at various points by commentary. Yes, I knew Dusty Rhodes was silly and funny. Never knew just how outrageously fun he was on a show like WCW Prime. There was the show I did, I don't remember, it was probably episode 50-something. It was a Action Zone from 1995 where Todd Pettengill is shockingly good on commentary alongside Jim Ross to the point where Pettengill is like leading the broadcast at certain points. So I'm willing to hear Bartlett out, and I know he'll have his share of stinkers, but maybe he'll have a share of good jokes on this Raw, which is actually taped because they could not do live Raws every week at this time just because of the costs in 1993 not being the best time for them financially. It was also hampered, and the taping was on March 1st, so this is the week after the live Raw would have aired hampered by a snowstorm and I remember 93 in the northeast it had a ton of snow days when I was in the eighth grade we were in school right up to I think about June 29th and that is about the point where they stop and add days on Saturday or they take away school vacation if there were any more snow days after a certain point I don't know if the storm that hit New York on March 1st would have impacted Boston. I Presumably, it did, and I just don't remember it at all. But a lot of guys were unable to make this taping because of the weather. But we still have plenty of star power on this show. I have a matchup of two former AWA champions from the 1980s in Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning, taking on Rick the Model Martell. And in another name-brand restaurant-quality match, we have the Tag Team Champions, Money Incorporated, whose challenge was accepted by the Mega Maniacs, as you heard at the very top of the show. I'll get into that in a second, because that's the first thing you hear on the broadcast. They are taking on the original Golden Lovers in Virgil and El Matador, Tito Santana. We see other various 
fragments of 1993 WWF on display here. Tatanka, the Native American, on his way to an icy title match at WrestleMania 9, which is obviously what we are building to here. Bob Backlund, back in New York City and getting a surprising amount of crowd support here. He is in action as well. And Papa Shango, who I always just think sort of disappeared at some point in 1992, but nope, he hangs around when the calendar changes and he sticks around for quite a while into 1993. He has a match on this show as well. So why don't we just jump right into it? Nineteen ninety-three was not exactly the greatest year for Michael Jackson for obvious reasons, based on sexual abuse allegations made against him that surfaced later that year. Also not the greatest year for Hulk Hogan and Brutus the Barber Beefcake. No. Beefcake, I think, was looking for more heal my face. Allow me to work a match that people won't hate. Something like that. I'm just kinda ad-libbing there. And Hogan's promo at the top of the show is with him and Beefcake and Jimmy Hart, who had turned on Money, Inc. out of sympathy for Brutus the Barber getting hit in the face with IRS's briefcase because those guys were some oh doing some OG shit on those early Raws, DiBiase and IRS, who they just decide to have like a coin flip or whatever to see who will face Beefcake, and then they... Hit him with that briefcase with the brick in it. Jimmy Hart decides to, you know, leave Money, Inc. and, you know, cover up and help Beefcake, which, by the way, Jimmy Hart must be a really forgiving soul after all the torture that Beefcake had put him through in 87 and 88. I mean, just on the Saturday Night's Main Event that I talked about on the Place to Be podcast this past Monday, he tried to cut the top of Jimmy's hair with the freaking hedge clippers like he was a bush out in front of the house and i'm not talking george w or jeb that was some ugh. i don't know what beefcake was really thinking there so seeing jimmy hart as a baby face is just so fucking weird i mean i know he was still in that role in wcw from the point where hogan comes in in the summer of 94 all the way up through halloween havoc 95 when evil is living in your house hulk hogan and i know that's the second time i've done that i just thought it was a funny quote by kevin sullivan on that nitro but hogan and beefcake and hogan actually channels one of his old WrestleMania promotional appearances. We got a little surprise for you, brothers. And by the way, from New York, it's Monday Night Raw. Of course, he can't say live because it's a taped Raw. It's in reference to the Saturday Night Live appearance that Hogan hosted with Mr. T the night before the first WrestleMania. And according to the book Live from New York, or I'm not sure where I read this, that they were a not last minute substitute but somebody else was supposed to host that week and didn't do it or couldn't do it or whatever and t and hogan filled in 
So if so, that's a lucky break for the WWF in terms of promoting the first WrestleMania. It also kind of connects Hulk Hogan with Dick Ebersol, which is something that would lead directly to Saturday night's main event coming about six weeks after the first WrestleMania. It is particularly strange to hear Hogan talk about winning the tag team titles, considering that he had been the world champion for much of the previous decade and had hardly ever been in tag team action except for you know to really kind of run an angle yeah there was a house show program with him and Bigelow versus the mega box but that was a very short period it would usually be just to set up Hogan's friend turning against him and then the next big angle going forward another strange thing about Hogan's promo is the getting to know you song that he is singing which is actually from the Chevy Geo commercials at the time. So you have Hogan, he of the 24-inch pythons, but now that the Zahorian thing is passed and the whole steroid scandal tainted him in 91 and 92 and he kind of came clean to Vince in what seemed like a continuation of that pre-WrestleMania 8 interview that aired on a Raw a few weeks before this, where he kind of came clean and said, Hulk Hogan has made some mistakes. Well, and now he's talking about Chevy Geos or referencing that commercial, which could he have picked a smaller car? I mean, Hogan is really into downsizing at this point, to the point where he's, you know, in bed with a Chevy Geo. Seems kind of strange. We go to our hosts, Vince McMahon, Randy Savage, and Rob Bartlett, who I swear I'm going to try to be fair to on this show. And Bartlett... Is most famous, he was a stand up at the time, but most famous for being on the Don Imus radio program. And a lot of people know Don Imus as the guy who was a dick to Howard Stern in the movie Private Parts and in reality. And yes, Don Imus is a real douchebag dick. We, we now know that for sure after the whole Rutgers women's basketball team thing from 2007 that got him shit-canned from WFAN. And then, you know, he turns up on MSNBC or wherever the hell he went. But 93, Imus was pretty hot in terms of his show getting syndication outside of New York. Maybe not to the level of Howard Stern, which was already on in the Boston area, which I can use as my example. But Imus got on the sports radio station WEI in Boston in 1993 as they had tried a couple of different morning shows for the previous two years, and it had failed miserably, so they decided it would be easier just to syndicate a show from New York that was very sort of topical and news-oriented, And Rob Bartlett was sort of like a comic relief on that show, almost sort of like Jackie the Joke Man on the Stern show, but, you know, a lot more toned down. The Ima show was not the Stern show in any sort of way. The only thing that I think it really had in common was larger-than-life host and based in New York City. It's 12 minutes after 9. I'm in the morning speaking of eating. Rob Bartlett's on the phone. Speaking of being hungry, we got Virgil here teaming up with his best buddy in the whole wide world el matador tito santana it's kind of interesting here in that the two of these guys you would think that they would use el matador's music because it's a cool sounding thing 
and Tito Santana is a much bigger star than Virgil, but no, they actually come out to Virgil's music, probably because they're thinking, well, Virgil was super over in New York more recently than Tito Santana was because of the SummerSlam 1991 match against DiBiase. And coincidentally, of course, Money Inc. here, Ted DiBiase and IRS, the WWF Tag Team Champions, gearing up for their match with the Mega Maniacs at WrestleMania 9, which would be a complete train wreck in just about every aspect. I, I hate just about everything about that match, even though, you know, there's, there's a lot of good pieces there for it to be a decent match, but, you know, Hogan in the middle of the card is a little weird, even in 1993, like that. It's just <laughs> Jimmy Hart turning his referee jacket or his jacket inside out to turn it into a referee's thing, even though it wasn't what the referee outfit looked like at that time. DiBiase, speaking of clothes, has a snappy all-black tuxedo, which is even better looking than the black and gold tuxedo he would have in 1989. So maybe I really need to reevaluate my you know rankings of the DiBiase tuxes over time. I believe that was talked about on the Letters from Kayfabe podcast a while back. I know they did a whole segment talking about the friendship of Virgil and Tito Santana and how often they teamed up. I believe it was one of the later episodes. There's only 20 episodes of Letters from Kayfabe. So check that out in the archives and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. If you go to SoundCloud, you see all the old shows sorted out into various playlists. Greetings from Allentown has its own playlist. That's the best way to check out all those great shows from the past. And IRS, of course, (laughs) this is, he's got to get in his piece about tax cheats and all that business. And it is actually rather topical for early 1993. Thanks to Mr. Clinton, you tax cheats are finally going to have to pay your fair share. Topical in that Bill Clinton had just become president a few months before and was rolling out his initial budget. And he announced plans to increase taxes on the wealthiest Americans, which eventually came to be as part of the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1993, which did not get a single Republican vote in either House of Congress, either the House nor the Senate. And it effectively raised the top bracket to 39.6%, lifted some caps on Medicaid taxes. I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but suffice to say, it did have a role in the short-term balanced budgets of the late 90s before the tax rates started to be cut back under Bush 43. And then later, later this most recent cut with Uh, that Trump signed actually kind of does screw the state of New York with uh, the limited state and local tax uh, deductions that are there. It it really screws over states like California and New York, but that's, that's neither here nor there. I do wonder if Ted DiBiase was deducting his just for men that he was using because Ted's hair color in 93 just gets all weird. It sort of had like a blondish hue for his entire WWF run. And then for the last 
eight months or so, it, it turns like this weirdly dark color where you can tell immediately that he's putting some sort of coloring in it. And I know what you're up to, Ted, and I'm going to expose this thing and blow it wide open 25 years after the fact. I don't, I don't know what he's doing. I mean, his hair color was fine. Maybe it was turning gray. Who knows? But I'm pretty sure that being the million-dollar man, he probably could have concocted something that was more what his hair color always was. Also, Tito's boots match the stripes on Virgil's gear, or at least it does on the coloring on my phone, which I, I thought was a neat little thing. I wonder if they coordinated like that. And we get a nice callback between Ted and Virgil because these two guys are forever linked. They were together for almost four years from 87 to the beginning of 1991. So Ted puts his foot on the second turnbuckle and does the shining of the shoes motion towards Virgil, which I, I really enjoy when they when they make a reference to something that happened before and then was dropped and now you're bringing it up again. And Ted and Tito... It's kind of an aborted 1991 feud. The very end of the year after the Tuesday in Texas pay-per-view, I, I seem to recall vignettes of DiBiase making fun of Tito Santana that really didn't sort of go anywhere because Ted was put into Money, Inc. They get the tag titles off the Legion of Doom at that mysterious show in Denver that they said that they weren't going to tape but supposedly there are tapes of LOD losing the titles to Money Inc and who knows maybe that'll be on an unreleased at some point in the future and we get a comment from Bartlett here who asks if El Matador wins will he take Ted's ear off which I thought was a little strange at first and then I looked into it and yes that is Matadors would take the ears off of the bulls that they had conquered or whatever kind of a barbaric practice and I think quite unbecoming of a baby face so maybe if Tito became a heel matador he would do something like that if the matador wins this you think he'll take Nibias's ear off <laughs> I like to consider myself a Vince McMahon fake laugh scholar of sorts and that one kind of struck me as, yes, I'm, I'm laughing at what you're saying, but I don't know how much he was really feeling it because he didn't do the ha, 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 ha at the end. He didn't do the ha at the end. He just kind of stopped abruptly. So maybe he sensed that the Rob Bartlett thing wasn't going to work out. Tito's working the side headlock, tags to Virgil, and then IRS tags in. We had started with Tito and DiBiase. Bartlett thinks that Virgil and Montel Williams are the same person. So that's strike one for Bartlett there. I'm kind of calling balls and strikes on him. I am going to give him credit where credit is due, but when he makes a stupid joke, I have to call him out. You know, I got a theory about Virgil Vince. What's that? He and Montel Williams are the same person. You know, could very well be. You never see them together, do you? No, as a matter of fact, I don't believe I have. Yeah, I'm not sure if the quote-unquote all-black-guys-look-alike humor isn't exactly going to fly on a national level in 1993. Uh, strike one, as I said. Virgil is working the headlock spot as well, but just not as good as Tito. But he does enough to get Irwin to bail out to the floor in this aggressive El Matador. I kind of like him in this match. He chucks 
Shyster back into the ring. Double team, double back elbow gets a two count. Tito is still really good here in 1993. And he doesn't stick around past, I think, late in the summer or early in the fall. He does have a rather timeless moveset. Time-traveling Tito Santana is a guy that I think you could send all the way back to the 60s, and you could probably have him work even up to today as kind of a plucky baby face, although I think that they would probably book him wrong, uh, as they do a lot of people. And Tito and Virgil actually do kind of a heel move. They do the fake tag where the referee is distracted with DiBiase on the apron, and they do the clap move to make it sound like they did a tag but they actually didn't it's really interesting to see tito santana like a baby face for so many years who never turned heel to to my knowledge at least during you know his big runs almost like a ricky steamboat archetype and he's doing heel type stuff here They do the uncooked, uncensored, uncut bit between Vince, Savage, and Bartlett, which they actually get right this time. And Tito, while this is going on, Tito cheap shots Ted, which is, uh, what is going on with Tito Santana? What has gotten into him? By the way, his last match would be in August of 93, and he would kind of wrestle all over the place for years afterwards I mean, working indie shows almost up to this day I don't know if he's still active per se now because he's in his mid-60s but the guy could go for quite a while and I think they just saw him as a creature of the 80s which is why he was never brought back for a run and we get an ad break and I am blessed to announce that we actually do have the commercials on this show. So original 1993 commercials such as Prell Shampoo. No sign of Edge or Booker T here. There's not going to be an angle at WrestleMania 9 over this. A movie, Point of No Return with Bridget Fonda. Never saw that one and I really don't care to see it. And another movie, but a USA movie, Drive Like Lightning with Cynthia Gibb who... I would know best as the Rob Lowe love interest in the 1986 hockey movie, Youngblood. But the commercial that caught my attention the most was for the Wendy's Monterey Ranch Chicken. Quality sandwich, if you ask me. And it's still kind of around to this day as the Asiago Ranch sandwich. It's got the bacon in it. It's got the ranch but they kind of mixed up the cheese now. They went from Monterey Jack to Asiago. Asiago seems something a little more modern. Monterey Jack seems a little too passe. And you have Dave Thomas in the ad as well. I know he passed away about 10 years ago, which would be why you haven't seen him because you know it's kind of hard to do a commercial when you're dead. And the Twix graduation night sweepstakes which was to win a trip to Universal Studios I didn't quite understand what the point of the contest was but before we know it we're back to the match and Tito gets need and he is the baby face in peril here Virgil on the apron he's trying to work the crowd into a frenzy stomping on the apron trying to get a clap going they're nothing nothing the, the Virgil used up all of his overness at SummerSlam in 91 like it, it was basically just pushed all of his chips to the center of the table and yes he won and then he went and spent it all on meat sauce he does get the hot tag and he lays both guys out with clotheslines a slam and then he runs the ropes but Ted who is now on the outside of the ring trips Virgil as he comes to that side 
an IRS scores with a belly-to-back suplex. And that is what picks up the win because let this serve as a reminder that it doesn't take much to beat 1993 Virgil. Just he gets a hot tag, he's a house of fire, and then one belly-to-back suplex and he's out for the count. So the tag teams pick up a win against the legendary duo of El Matador and Virgil as they are gearing up for the first half of the double main event at WrestleMania 9. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the pro wrestling only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Get a video package of the recent goings-on between Tatanka and the Intercontinental Champion, Shawn Michaels. They had had a couple of matches where Tatanka had emerged victorious. And superstars, they had had a non-title match, which is usually a flag, especially when a heel is the champion, that the babyface will emerge victorious and then go on to challenge for the title in actual title matches. And so it was, Tatanka picking up the win. And then on Raw, several weeks before this, in a six-man match, he picked up a victory over Michaels via pinfall with a sunset flip off the Shawn Michaels teardrop suplex move that was his inexplicable finisher at the time. Apparently, they really liked belly-to-back suplexes back in 93 and 92 WWF. Seemed like that was kind of a trend at the time. So after they showed that, they cut to the model in the ring. No, not Rick Martel. He's not there yet. One of the raw girls who would carry a sign and would have various slogans like, you know, keeping it raw or 1-800-RAW or whatever. So some sort of message to keep the crowd entertained during breaks. And Bruce Pritchard on that podcast and you know, talking about the origins of Monday Night Raw said that they would hire fitness models for this sort of thing. So women who look nice and who are in shape. Occasionally they would use the Rossetti sisters as well for this sort of thing as a sort of comic relief, I guess. So these, this woman is walking around with the cart and Rick Martel actually does make his way out. And he is saying that she has no class. And apparently he missed the Tito Santana match because he knows that Tito has no class. And Tito's timing was way off. Although I do think he would have been impressed with how El Matador was sort of healing it up and maybe teasing a turn to the dark side. So he's wearing an interesting outfit where it looks like he's going to run the America's Cup or something like he's off for a day of sailing, especially with the hat that makes Bartlett comment that he looks like something out of Gilligan's Island. And I'd say that that's actually a good point by Bartlett, and I'm not going to turn down a chance to talk about Gilligan's Island. He's kind of a composite, though, of three different characters from the show. He's got the skipper's hat. He's got sort of Ginger's modeling chops, and sort of the millionaire's little, you know, rich guy thing. Because, you know, Rick Martell also comes off as a bit of a rich guy as well. It really isn't a hunk 
on Gilligan's Island. And you can say that the best looking one was probably the professor, but it's not like Marianne and Ginger were, you know, ready to have a seat on them or anything like that. I mean, even though they were on an island and they're trapped, it's not like there was any sort of sexual tension. Maybe there was. I don't know. They did a lot of episodes in a very short period of time. They would do like 40 episodes in a season of Gilligan's Island, which ought to tell you, you know, the quality of the writing that would go into that. And they'd go to another ad break. And our ads this time are for Skittles. And their promo at this time, their, their, their whole bit was the number of combinations of flavors that you could do in a bag of Skittles. And apparently they came up with the answer. And I don't know if they're kayfabing us here or if the real number is 371,292. But this is kind of a famous ad at the time. Not quite to the level of how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pomp, but still pretty effective. Nad, for various video games, I didn't quite understand. It seemed very unfocused because they were talking about Roger Clemens' MVP Baseball and a few other games as well. One's from Acclaim. And then a couple of local ads, which allows me to realize where the show was taped from. And it was definitely from a VCR in San Francisco area because they talk about this place called Park Avenue that was going out of business at that time. And they're having a big sale. And then a Buzzvan for Buzzvan for Bargains store, which looks to be, for those of us from the Boston area, kind of a building 19 and a half like a super sort of thrift store where you could get all manner of crap you probably had one in your local area by some other name Uh, that store bus van for bargains closed in 2002 kind of a quirky place by all accounts in the uh, san francisco bay area and then finally an ad for another piece of wwf programming much less famous that launched in 1993 just like monday night raw this would be wwf mania hosted by todd pettengill who as i said took a while to get his bearings and was often annoying but he certainly had his moments in the commentary booth at some point again i'm gonna have to find another episode of action zone where it's just him and vince because that, that was one of the weirder teams that I've covered. And I have done an episode of WWF Mania, though you wouldn't know it because it was episode 27, The Sunny Show, because it was hosted by Sunny and rebranded and this and that, for March of 1996. It's actually one of my least favorite episodes that I've done. So if, if you want to hear what an episode sounds like that I don't particularly care for, go back and listen to that one as I'm struggling to come up with the names of moves that Shawn Michaels is doing. Falling back on that ass, what a hell of a gangster lean. Getting funky on the mic like an old batch of collard greens. It's the capital S-O-S impression, double O-P-D-O-double-G-Y-D-O-double-G, you see? Showing much flex when it's time to wreck a mic. Pimping hoes and clocking a grip like my name was Dolomite. Yeah, and it don't quit. I think they in the mood for some other... If you're looking for somebody who broke out of a tag team in 1993 and became a single star on their own, Snoop Doggy Dog, pretty good place to start there. I mean, listen to it. Showing much flex when it's time to wreck a mic. Pimping hose and clocking a grimp like my name was Dolomite. Yeah. Anytime you mention Dolomite, it's going to get me rolling for whatever reason. Coming up next, <laughs> Tatanka... 
the real Native American, which I has to be a shot at Chief J. Strongbow every time. They would say real Native American. Either that or Vince wanted to drive home the point of all the other Native Americans before were fake. But but this guy, this guy just happens to be the real deal. And he is taking on Phil Apollo here. I've seen him before. I think he's turned up on one of the greetings from Allentown. And as I mentioned, as a Vince Laugh scholar, you know, I, I noticed a little difference in him laughing at Rob Bartlett's joke before. And he does a laugh here, and it made me wonder again, is he laughing more at the Native American dance or whatever that he's doing, or does he laugh more at hillbillies? Tatanka doesn't win the Intercontinental title against Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 9, instead prevailing by DQ in order to keep his win streak alive. And that's something that people like to go back and rebook. Uh, oh, Tatanka should have just won and let him have a run with the IC title. But you have to really drill down and think about it because not only does that impact what Tatanka does going forward, it impacts what Shawn Michaels is doing going forward. You lose a bunch of stuff by moving it on. Yeah, you probably have rematches in the aftermath of those two guys going against each other, but you'd also lose the Sean and Marty from the spring and summer with Mr. Perfect getting involved. You'd lose Michaels versus Mr. Perfect at SummerSlam, albeit you know, not, a, not the match that they build it to be, which is a mistake in billing something as the greatest of all time before it actually happens because you're just raising expectations to an unreasonable level. To my mind, I actually think it wouldn't have had been bad to have Sean win at WrestleMania 9, but just have him cheat outrageously and really put the heat on him for doing that in order to end Tatanka's winning streak, which I'm not really a fan of of streak angles, whether they be losing streaks or winning streaks, because the Goldberg thing is one of the few times in 98 when they actually managed to pull it off. WCW pulled something off better than anybody else, which is a minor miracle, but I just don't, there's, you have to figure out a way to end it, and it almost always gets screwed up and ends up hurting the guy, and with Tatanka, it ends up being Ludwig Borger pins him with one finger, and that's how it ends, and he was really just kind of never the same once he lost that thing, you know, that the streak, and Shawn Michaels calls in via the telephone. This is a trope from Raw's in the early days. Instead of the inset promos where they would talk to them, I don't understand why they would do it by telephone, and I guess the idea is that you have this Raw that's taped, and you could have them call in and have commentary that way, but I guess the timing was off on that, so it just kind of became a regular promo where he's talking back and forth to commentary, and Shawn Michaels as a promo, I have a number of issues with him in that role. And he tells us that Tatanka's got the fever? I got news for you. Don't you people see what's happening? Tatanka is suffering from the fever. He's got the fever. See, he's walked up to the table. He's rolled the dice, and he got lucky. He walked up to the table again. He let those dice go, and he got lucky twice. Yeah. But the big time is coming. April 4th. 
and Las Vegas, Nevada at Caesars Palace. He's going to walk up to that table for the third and final time. And when he rolls those dice, they're going to come up snake eyes. When he's got the fever for a girl. He's got the fever. I mean, I'm trying to mine anything of interest out of what Shawn Michaels is saying because he says, I got news for you three times in this one little promo. He says that Tatanka's got the fever and also mentions a roll of the dice. I was trying to figure out if he's trying to mention as many Bruce Springsteen songs as he possibly can. A roll of the dice was off one of Springsteen's 1992 albums. I can't remember if it was Lucky Town. I think it was Human Touch, actually. But The Fever, that's a song from the 70s that only really the hardcore fans knew about in the early 90s. didn't get released formally until 18 tracks in 1998. So maybe, I don't know, maybe Shawn Michaels is a big Springsteen fan. I'm just maybe looking for ways to support him in some sort of way after hating him for about a quarter of a century. Power slam by Tatanka and followed up with a missed elbow, which I thought was unusual in a squash match environment like this. But, you know, Apollo had his little run back in world class in the late 80s and 87, 88 when things ceased to be interesting. I know the Worldcast podcast will get to him at some point in the year 2023, 2024. I don't know if he works a time limit draw with Al Madrill on television, but uh, we shall see. Get some big chops from Tatanka, not pork chops, but you know, wrestling chops. And the papoose for here, I mean, I mean the papoose to go, finishes things off in this bonus. Tatanka getting set for the Intercontinental title match against Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania. But as I said, I would have gone a completely different way with it and maybe put the heat on Shawn for ending the streak. And then finally, you can free Tatanka up to kind of be a normal wrestler instead of having a streak hanging over his head. And Rob Bartlett, who, again, I'm trying. I'm really trying to be fair to you, Rob Bartlett. And another example here, I like his line when Shawn Michaels finally hangs up the telephone. Shawn Michaels has left the phone booth. Terrific callback by Bartlett to a year earlier when Bobby Heenan is constantly saying that Shawn Michaels has left the building, which is an homage to an Elvis thing from years before that. Remember phone booths? Like, I feel like I'm in the last generation of people who will actually remember what they were. There was a phone booth at my school, but it was really more of a closet with like a big wood door, almost kind of like a sauna or whatever. You know, when I think of phone booths, I think of this. Yeah. Yeah. Who's this? This is Vinny. Vinny, what happened? Well, Did we get straightened out? No, we had a problem. I mean, uh, we tried to do everything we could. What do you mean? Well, you know what I mean. He's gone. And we couldn't do nothing about it. That's it. What do you mean? What do you mean? Uh, He's gone. He's gone. And that's it. You recall in Goodfellas that Jimmy ends up destroying the phone booth afterwards, tips it over. I was like the army guy who walks past in the background. It stops and looks and then it's like, I think I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> it's one of my favorite Goodfellas. He, the guy on the other end kind of sounds like a wrestling promoter. You know, just talking about something that went wrong. Eh, we did everything we could, but you know, there was nothing we could do about it. Uh, WrestleMania 9, very much like 
Tommy getting whacked. Like they did everything they could there. They dressed up the Caesar Palace parking lot. They brought in Hulk Hogan. You know, and Shawn Michaels versus Tatanka. We did everything we could, but you know there was a problem, and and there was nothing we could do about it. go with your Wrestlemania report here on Raw. When you make a big change like they did creating Monday Night Raw, you're bound to have stuff that when you look back years later just feels really, really weird. In the past, I'm thinking like Pedro Morales appearing on Superstars in like 1986 and 87. That just feels weird because he feels like a creature of the 70s or at least one of the early 80s. And here... You have an update segment with Gene Okerlund like you used to have on Superstars and Challenge, but Mean Gene is talking about being on Raw, which would not last long because he would depart roughly after SummerSlam and would turn up in WCW by the end of the year, and you'd associate Mean Gene way more with WCW Monday Nitro because he was there for a much longer period of time. But here he is running down the WrestleMania 9 card, speaking of that piece of business again. The double main event, second straight year they're billing it as a double main event, but it really does not feel... uh, When you have double main event, it really means that one of them is going to get the shaft, as it turns out, because you're going to put it right before the intermission, which would be the Hogan Beefcake versus Money Inc. match. And other things about that bout that I always kind of found interesting is it's the second Brutus Beefcake Ted DiBiase match at a WrestleMania because they faced off at WrestleMania 5 that really neither guy had anything going on at the time and they end up in a double count. It was really just one big excuse so that everybody could get Donald Trump's picture shaking Virgil's hand. And I wondered, looking at IRS, is he still pissed off about losing to the Dream Team and the tag titles the way that he did in 1985. I mean, Beefcake was there. He's rubbing the cigar in his brother-in-law's eye. I mean, you, you think, well, this eight years have passed. Like, I'd still be kind of pissed. I mean, it was a little over the top and violent. And they're pushing the tickets for Caesar's Palace. And I do feel the need to point out, not my favorite casino in Las Vegas, although the voice from Greetings of Allentown, Keith Langston, once spent 71 consecutive hours in the poker room there back in 2009. I recall that happening. And he had to, you know, he had to come bust him out of there after a while. It was, it was a really touch-and-go rescue mission. <laughs> Caesars Palace does not have an apostrophe on it. It's just Caesars and then with an S. So it's like multiple Caesars in that... Anybody who walks in there is Caesar. You are the boss or whatever. So promoting the real main event of WrestleMania 9, even though technically it didn't go on last because Hulk Hogan versus Yokozuna was the last match of the night. Bret Hart versus Yokozuna to maybe cement Bret as something of a miracle worker trying to pull something out of the old Yokes man. The, the problem with that is... Putting a 550-pound guy out in the sun in Las Vegas like that might not have been the greatest idea in the world, and he did, he did suffer for it. It did kind of run out of gas after about eight minutes. I'm not sure that the match got cut short, but I know Brett complains about it in his book. And Brett, in his promo, 
kind of calling back to an earlier greetings from Allentown, his pronunciation of his opponent's name. I've studied Yokozuna, and I've watched him come into the World Wrestling Federation and wipe out every single guy he stepped in the ring with. He's wiped them all out. He's squashed them all. From the perspective of just common opponents, it doesn't look very good for Brett. Because, you know, he had a hard-fought match with Brother Virgil in late 1992 during his fighting champion phase. And Virgil contrasted with Virgil getting absolutely demolished by Yokozuna at the Survivor Series the previous November. And Mr. Fuji is with Yokozuna, and they make a bunch of noises. You take a good look at my Yokozuna. 505 pounds. Yes! And here, what are we going to do to your axis of execution? Booyah! Become the new WWF heavyweight champion. Oh, snake! Banzai, no? <laughs> Banzai! Banzai, Danielson! Hey, Banzai! 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 It's a lot to digest there. Between Daniel choosing the yellow car, like, what the hell is up with that? I mean, it's got, like, a nice black car there that's pretty much identical. No, I'm going to choose the yellow one that looks the most like a taxi cab. It is a pretty sweet ride. It is a 1948 Ford Super Deluxe Club convertible. So, not too bad. It would have been funny if Daniel, because he was, you know, dirt poor, had just turned around and sold the car. Uh, uh, what would his mother think? They can't even start a friggin' station wagon without putting it into neutral and then running it down the street. And now Daniel has this sweet ride. Like how they... When Miyagi would yell Danielson, I always thought he said Danielson. Like, like what is he, a big fan of Brian Danielson or something? Like, no, 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 no. It was a different time in, in Japanese. Uh, San, you know, means uh, younger man or something to that effect. And, and then, I don't know. I don't know why LaRusso chose that car over the many superior ones and why Miyagi just kind of let him go with it. But he had, he had a lot of cars to spare, I, I have to admit. Uh, uh, <laughs> maybe maybe with the ca- choosing the one that looked like a cab, Daniel was just so beaten down and feeling subservient to everything that was going on between sanding the decks, washing, waxing the car, wash and wax for you, sir? Like... <laughs> Like, I think I'm just going to drive a cab. Like, if I can't beat the Cobra Kais, I'm just going to Uber them from place to place. Anyway, an Undertaker promo with Paul Bearer. And the less said about that Giant Gonzalez match, the better. Because even I can't spin that into anything. It's just a complete waste of time. Other than the fact that when they gets the chloroform rag that gets him DQ'd, the referee lays on a five count. <laughs> Like, like a chloroform rag. If he, he if he had broke at a count of four and a half, it somehow would have been legal. Nobody could get anything out of Giant Gonzalez, except for allegedly Ric Flair got like a three-star match out of him at a house show. But I've never seen it. So I, I think it might be one of those Ric Flair legend things that, that people just sort of say. And, and Oakland wraps this up by... Asking a question, which is kind of weird. Asking Vince if Martel should be careful, as you get that Mr. Perfect versus the model, that he is not perfect, as he says. And Martel is back in the ring when they go back to the Manhattan Center, and he he's going to do it himself with the ring cards. And the camera work here is rather 
head scratching because the poor girl is wearing cut off Daisy Duke shorts and they are up pretty damn high on like her inner thigh and stuff and the guy with the camera is shooting it from the floor as she's getting out of the ring and make sure to get um well you know and savage on commentary is kind of funny he says things are looking up <laughs> very very subtle reference to some of the camera work as they throw to an ad break here for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. I was shocked that the third one had come out by this point, but got a strike while the iron is hot. Then Crest Complete Toothbrush. And this reminds me, get a good toothbrush. Like you don't have to get the electric one that, you know, you have to charge and all that. Just spend the money, get a decent toothbrush that has like the, the ridges or whatever you know so that you can get you know get down in there it, it's it's always a worthwhile investment and change your toothbrush fairly often like I mean, what once a month you, you'll be you'll be glad you did long john silvers has a 199 deal and i gotta tell you when i when i buy seafood i like to pay more than two dollars for it I, like there are some things i just don't want to take any chances it's long john silvers and not long dong silvers i uh, just want to make that point and then lens express <laughs> they get Linda Carter to do the ad here, Wonder Woman. And then they do the ad, and then they shoot her entirely from the neck up. It's like, all right, we're going to spend all this money bringing in Linda Carter. Granted, she's a little older from her Wonder Woman days, but yeah, we're going to shoot her from the neck up. I know it's an eye commercial, but you're, you, it's Linda freaking Carter here. What, what the hell are you doing? Place Simulations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaySimulation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics On Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlaceMation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceMation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryWrestling.com, and Scott Geek's Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as well. PlaceMation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Papa Shango is taking on Mike Edwards. 
next. And Edwards is kind of got a weird track record. All of his matches are in Vancouver, Canada, except for this one Raw. So I think that this might be a case of Mike Edwards is getting mixed up, perhaps, because this is his only match on record in WWF against Papa Shango, of all people, in 1993. And quite frankly, this shit was dead to me the second the Ultimate Warrior puked up that green slime after WrestleMania 8. Yeah, there was a chance maybe I was going to stick around with Hogan leaving and watch on a week-to-week basis. But the second I saw that happen, I'm like, this is this sucks. I mean, I think I echo the sentiments of pretty much everybody who saw that. Nobody was watching the product because of Papa Shango. It's not like anybody wanted to see him get his ass kicked. You just really wanted him to go away, and he certainly drove me away for a time in 1992. Voodoo as a gimmick, I think, can work, but we already had the template for voodoo in 92 and 93. You gotta make it a babyface gimmick like it was for Pedro Serrano in Major League because he, he got over in that movie just with the Joe Boo stuff and all that. Although I don't entirely trust Vince McMahon to you know properly deal with those sort of matters because it is a kind of you know sort of religion. It is a belief system that people have and you know, it would be easily mocked. And Shango at WrestleMania would actually make the card, but he would actually be on the dark match of the show and lose to El Matador Tito Santana, who picked up his first win at a WrestleMania show since WrestleMania won against the executioner, Buddy Rose, under a mask. Second straight week, I'm mentioning those two guys together. <laughs> After a losing streak of seven consecutive WrestleManias, although many of them were in tag matches, and in many of them, Tito did not even take the pin. There are signs of what is to come for Papa Shango, who would eventually become WWE Hall of Famer Papa Shango, or the Godfather, or the Good Father. He does the hoe train move to the corner on Edwards, but doesn't really do like the arm stuff, like he's swimming his way to get there. And another back suplex. What is going on with the back suplexes? Like, did somebody watch like an All Japan tape or or something? And like, did it get passed around at the Manhattan Center? Like, all right, we we got to start dumping more guys on the back of their necks. Like, th- this is this is the future of wrestling. And he pulls them up at the two count, which, admittedly, I, I always kind of like when that happens. And they start talking about the upcoming Mister Perfect Rick Martel match later in the show. And Bartlett, it, I'm not, I'm not going to call this a strike, but let's just let's just say he fouled one off with this one. Predict a winner if you would, Macho Man. Well, I want to see Rick Martel get beat because of what he's doing to the Raw girls. That reason alone. I see. And uh, you, Mr. Bartlett? Well, didn't you tell me Perfect was going to win? Well, I don't know. And with that, Rob Bartlett accidentally reveals that he sat in on a booking meeting in 1993 before Raw. Hey, Vince, didn't you tell me he was going over in that match? Like, what the hell kind of a remark is that? It's so absurd that it's actually funny, which is why I'm giving him credit for a foul ball. And Shango is not going for the win here. They're letting this kind of go on for a little bit. Apparently, nacho sales must be down, and uh, we keep keep Shango in the ring a little bit longer. You know, go go to the stands, buy some merch. It'll be over eventually. And he does score the win with the shoulder breaker, where he would get the guy up in the Argentine backbreaker 
and then drop him on his shoulder that way. So not like from a body slam position. I cannot believe that Papa Shango hangs around until October. It's just absolutely incredible. To be the World Wrestling Federation champion, you got to want it every day. It takes an integrated approach to training, and that is what IcoPro is all about. Figures give you the fury of the hitman and the bite of the bulldog and the firepower of Sergeant Slaughter. WWF figures hit sold separately, dig it? It's not truly a 1993 WWF show unless there's an ad for IcoPro. You gotta want it, which I don't know what it is. I think it means the shits based on everything that I've heard about the product and how it would give people the runs, so to speak, and not the kind of runs that'll get you in shape or anything, like the ones that'll send you to the toilet. The ad for Hasbro's is particularly interesting because you have the British Bulldog's voice on there when he hasn't even been there in six months and departed under less than ideal circumstances. Sergeant Slaughter also, he hadn't wrestled in quite some time as well. So it's just kind of interesting. And then another ad for a Sega Genesis sports game. Again, with more promotional consideration. Now we have Bob Backlund coming off his Royal Rumble 1993 performance which he set the record for longest time in the ring during that time when they felt like they had to break that record every year although his record would stand I think for about a decade going forward he's taking on Tony DeMauro and he had five matches in the WWF all on TV you could definitely tell what era he was in because he faced the Quebecers the Smoking Guns Doink Ludwig Borga and, of course, Bob Backlund here, who gets kind of a muted reaction, but there is definite cheering. And there is one guy in the crowd that I'm going to get to that uh, was really behind Backlund. There's a, a Bobby chant as Backlund goes to shake hands with DeMauro, who has none of it. It's just kind of a strange thing for him trying to be a straight-up babyface and doing these sort of annoying things that the Rougeau brothers were doing to be annoying in 1988 and 89. So we knew that these were not babyface tactics anymore, but yet here's Backlund, kind of a man out of time or whatever. It's like he's out of like Pleasantville or whatever movie that was. It almost feel like his matches should be shown in black and white before he finally figured out the heel character, which doesn't it takes until 1994 for them to like, hey, you know what? This isn't working. Let's let's try something different with Backlund going forward. His WrestleMania 9 match with Razor Ramon is just so utterly weird. It, seeing Razor Ramon and Bob Backlund sharing the same ring is is one thing, but Backlund loses in under three minutes in his first WrestleMania match. So they had somewhat given up on the whole prospect of him becoming a top guy at least as a babyface he scores with a hip toss right away and then overpowers DeMauro a second time and this is where you start to notice there's a guy in the crowd wearing a yellow shirt that says just in kind of block letters Bob Backlund WWF world champion like what what you would wear if you were in the audience at the Price is Right and you really wanted to get on the show, except people there would usually put something about Bob Barker. It'd be funny if somebody put WWF champion Bob Barker, because after all, he is a friend of animals, 
and always advises you to get your pets spayed or neutered every week. Bob Barker reminding you, help control the pet population. Have your pets spayed or neutered. Good night, everybody. It was kind of ironic that he was talking about spaying and neutering pets when Bob Barker, as we found out, is one of the all-time legendary horn dogs in Hollywood history. <laughs> but Okay, so the guy in the crowd, he's really behind Backlund, and he's leading the cheers, so it kind of shows the power of one fan in a crowd, probably addled by snow or whatever, the storm that had kept people away that I mentioned in the intro. It, the people are getting behind Backland here. It's like almost like a moment of time that you're. It, it's, a, it's a time warp back to 1981. You almost expect the kids to just start storming the ring if Bob emerges victorious here. Vince sends Rob Bartlett out to interview Rick Martell. So he's kind of doing that thing. I'm like, all right, we've had enough of you for this show. So we're going to get you out of here for a few minutes. Kind of like when I was broadcasting that basketball game my senior year of high school. And they paired me with, I think, a sophomore or somebody. And he didn't say anything on commentary for almost the entire first half of the game. And I looked at him at halftime. I was like, look, do you actually want to do this? Or, you know, do you want to go hang out with your friends? He's like, yeah, I'll go over there. So then I called the rest of the game solo. (laughs) I'm a regular Vince Scully. Oh, that was, I guess, my first experience of broadcasting by myself with uh, no help at all. As Backlund is doing a lot of amateur stuff here, and it takes a while for this kind of to get going, for Bob to get in gear and get past that stuff. Vince lets us know what is coming up next on the USA Network. Speaking of battles, a little bit later on, tonight, right after Monday Night Raw, you don't miss the battle. Well, they say all is fair in love and war. Tonight, after returning from the dead, ex-hitman Stephen Matrix looked at love in a whole different light. Nick Mancuso stars in USA's all-new series, Matrix, coming up next right after tonight's Monday Night Raw. So yeah, that was no Silk Stockings or Pacific Blue or Murder, She Wrote. Uh, Much less memorable, only ran for 13 episodes and was a show originally broadcast on CTV in Canada. And one of the executive producers is Steve Levitan, who right now is one of the executive producers on Modern Family, which I think is making him a little bit more money. And one of the stars of the show went on to actually be in the movie The Matrix six years down the road. I I never cared for the movie. I thought it was boring and uh, like, ugh, just didn't didn't like it. Not not Keanu's best movie. He's certainly, I think, better in a lot of other stuff like Bill and Ted's and even even Youngblood where he plays the French-Canadian goalie. I, I enjoy him there. It's just a shame that the guy whose last name is Matrix, that he couldn't get his family on Family Feud. I, I would have loved for the intro there, like, we welcome the Matrix family. Yeah. And also, apparently, the guy who played Deed Wormer in Animal House, John Vernon, was the narrator on that Matrix show. So, a lot going on there. Uh, I, I don't really want to seek it out, and it's probably something you can't really find on a streaming service. But as I said, a lot of amateur stuff by Bob, but finally a back elbow by DeMauro sort of wakes him up, and he locks in a butterfly or double underhook suplex, whatever you want to call it. And Backlund is really taken by the guy wearing the shirt in the audience. And you can tell he's a little bit fired up that, you know, a little bit more crowd response to him here. It is kind of a shame that 
things didn't work out but times have changed you know like i said everything moves forward you can't you can't go back it, it's it's never going to be the same as it was you have to evolve or die and finally backland and you hear the phrase so often oh he shoots the half in amateur wrestling but in professional wrestling you you don't actually see somebody shoot the half not only does he actually do it but vince mcmahon not a guy known for his at least at least in the 1990s calling actual wrestling codes actually calls it and backland now with tomorrow rides him a little bit shoots the half turns him over and one two he gets it that was a very cute hitting combination yes sir Look at that reversal of roles there. Vince being the serious wrestling announcer and his counterpart, in this case, Savage, clowning it up. Like, yeah, Bob Backlund. Last week's show on the superstars from 1990 was talking about Rick Martel and his evolution into the model character and how he'd been a babyface for so long that it was going to take some time for him to find his footing not only as a heel but once he develops the model persona at the end of 89 to kind of figure out where he wanted to take it and by the time 1993 rolls around he's got a pretty firm grip on it and he's got Rob Bartlett there interviewing him and while Martel is a little bit repetitive in this it's still a pretty good promo although Bartlett calls him out on it at the end Rick Martel what is your deal man <laughs> first take a look at yourself Rob Bartlett <laughs> look at the way that you dress <laughs> you have no class you look so blah you're just like those card girls that's why I took them out of the ring because <laughs> I wanted to show them what Marlene is all about because I am the best I have class. And those girls are just like all these people here Monday Night Raw program. They have no class. This building has no class. I can't believe the model is standing all in the middle of this film. So basically you're saying there's no class. <laughs> See, this is where my being fair to Rob Bartlett actually pays off. Because I think in years past, it's just so negative about him and his whole persona and the things that he would say that I would immediately jump down his throat for shitting on Martel for repeating himself one too many times but actually that was kind of funny the way he deadpanned right back at him they go to the commercial break and there's an ad for extra sugar-free gum which reminds me consider this a public service announcement chew sugar-free gum I, I actually had a conversation with my wife about this because I mentioned how I wanted to talk about the benefits of sugar-free gum because it does, you know, loosen the plaque in your teeth and all that. I made the mistake in college of chewing big red gum, like cinnamon and uh, all that other all that other stuff. Not good for the teeth. As a counterpoint, my wife says, well, if you, if you chew sugar-free gum, you're more likely to get gas. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I chewed gum for a very long time, and I felt like I had no more or less gas than anybody else, except for those times you know, my freshman year when I was rooming with Chico, and he would have people over, and I would go down and get my ten pack of tacos at the Taco Bell and just load it up with sauce to, you know, just kind of fire off a few warning shots in the room to let people know not to be around me. Add for the movie Fire in the Sky. I don't remember anything about that one. 
another bus van for bargains ad in the local ad spot on this break. And then there's an ad for houseboats at Shasta Lake, which is in Northern California, and a place that I have never given a single thought to, to ever going on, say, a vacation. If I'm going to travel that far, I'd like to go someplace unique. Probably find something similar to that in New Hampshire or Maine, which I could just drive to. I'm going to fly all that way. I better be going to, like, Las Vegas or something like that. When the sun is beating down this summer and you need relief, try a cooling Shasta Lake vacation on a Holiday Harbor houseboat. There's water fun for everyone. Water ski, jet ski, try parasailing, or just spend the day fishing. Enjoy majestic mountain scenery and cool meandering waterways. Refresh yourself with a three, four, or seven-day houseboat vacation on Shasta Lake. Call Holiday Harbor at 1-800-776-BOAT and beat the summer heat. Wasn't that rather interesting? We see Brutus Beefcake earlier, and now we get an ad advising us to try parasailing. And to make matters even worse, it's in an area very close to Beefcake's kayfabe hometown of San Francisco. So, I don't know. Beefcake might be a cautionary tale, although I think perhaps it wasn't the parasailing that necessarily led to the accident. It was more that you know, recklessness of that woman whose knees slammed into his face. So we get to our final feature bout here. Rick the Model Martel against Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning to determine the greatest non-Nick Bockwinkle and non-Vern Gagne AWA champion of all time. Martel is still in the Gilligan's Island amalgam outfit that I was describing earlier. And Rob Bartlett kind of annoys the rest of commentary, especially Vince, who's like, all right, we've heard enough, when he's singing the Gilligan's Island theme. But interestingly, he is singing the season one theme. And the way you can tell is the end of the theme is different than in other years. With Gilligan, the skipper too, the millionaire and his wife. And the rest are here on Gilligan's Listening to that, you'd think that there was a 40-man roster backing up the first five that they went into. But no, no, it's just two more people, the professor and Marianne, who were later added in. But how goddamn lazy is that? Like, and the rest, indisrespectful to those two. Ugh, that's why they had to change that thing. Mr. Perfect, when he does his entrance second, he does his gum thing, which I, again, I hope that was sugar-free gum just for the benefit of his teeth. Martel, and I don't know if he had this earlier or if I I just didn't notice it. He He's, he's, he's got a pipe with him. How do you do, neighbor? <laughs> Good pipe weather. Thought I'd fire up the briar. Can't talk. Busy. Oakley doakley do. Did you notice how slanted he looked? All part of God's great plan. When you have two big name guys in there like this, my mind kind of goes back to the Pro Wrestling Only Greatest Wrestler Ever project from a couple of years ago to see where these guys fell in the final voting and also in the GWWE results that came out earlier this year to see how they landed there for just their WWE career. And it's kind of interesting with these two guys. I don't know if you'd associate Kurt Henning the most 
with his WWF WWE tenure. I think uh, the AWA would probably come in first for, for his matches with Bockwinkle and the fact that he was there as the top guy. Martel, more of a tag guy in the WWF, particularly during his babyface time, teaming with Tony Gurria, Tito Santana, and Tom Zank as well for at least a little while. Martel finished 43rd in the GWE, and Kurt Henning finished 55th. So overall, when you took his entire career, granted, different set of voters, Martel had the advantage. But in the GWWE project, Henning was higher. And I think some of that had to do with the fact that Martel's tag work in the very early 80s was perhaps maybe a little forgotten. 1981, his feud, him and him and Gurria against Fuji and Saito and all that. I think it was Fuji and Saito. From the GWWE perspective, I think Perfect got an edge there just on the basis of the character being cooler and more well-liked, the cocky babyface character that he's portraying around this time. For longevity, I would give it to Martel because he, you know, he kind of did stick around for a longer period of time. He didn't quite bump as recklessly as Kurt Henning did, which might have been the cause of some of his back issues later on. So, who had a better AWA title run? I don't know how if I can really judge it because Martel is the top guy when things are still okay. In 1984 and 85, and things really start to slip after that, Henning gets the title at 87 at Super Clash 3, which is not exactly... Uh, Super Clash 2, excuse me. It, it's not exactly his fault, so I, I really can't judge as to that because I don't think Henning had a lot to work with there. So into the match, they, they trade moves at the beginning, cutting a pretty quick pace. Both of them still very much have it in 1993. Again, I always think of Rick Martel's random 1998 WCW comeback. One of the great hidden gem stories of that time period in really any promotion. It's only like a two or three month deal where he becomes the TV champion. Martel tries a cheap shot on the ropes, but Perfect blocks it because that, that's part of his character. He's always ready for everything. He's got an answer for absolutely anything that is thrown at him. They talk on commentary about how Wade Boggs was impressed by Mr. Perfect. Those vignettes had aired before this. Another round of Mr. Perfect vignettes. This is more of a babyface nature. And Wade Boggs and Mr. Perfect struck up quite the friendship to the point where Boggs inducted Mr. Perfect into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2007. Some go-behinds, and then Perfect gets kicked off. But when Martel goes for a monkey flip, Perfect just cartwheels around it. People laugh and applaud that. He's so so unbelievably cocky. It's uh, it's really great stuff here from Henning. Uh, Martel does not break clean again, but this time he does get an advantage and starts working the arm. And maybe they're getting a little annoyed with Rob Bartlett on commentary because Savage says that they want to bring, quote, Elvis back as the third man in the booth because Rob Bartlett had actually been Elvis on the (laughs) previous week's Raw, which is the same taping as this one. 
He kind of just did the whole show in character. Early 93, Elvis was kind of in, well, he's always kind of in American popular culture, but that was at the point when they were voting over which Elvis we wanted on a postage stamp from the United States Postal Service, and we went with the 1950s Elvis. I, I always hate when they call it Fat Elvis, because he, he still brought it. It's just that, you know, he wasn't throwing 99 miles an hour anymore, and really... Who, who, who could blame him? You know, he'd been, he'd been through a lot. Martell ends up tumbling to the outside. His perfect kind of uh, uh, sends him out there. And they go to an ad break. It's, it's the same ads from before. So I'm kind of disappointed for the most part. There is an ad for AutoZone, which we didn't have before. And for the Solo Flex, $39 a month to have that gym equipment in your house i feel like that's a little pricey when you could just get a gym membership for probably ten dollars a month wendy's and then roger clemens mvp baseball coming right before clem one of clemens's worst seasons as a pitcher where era of i think it was 4.46 for the 93 red sox so as they come back from break uh, martell is now back in control and he's working the back which is very smart because that's where heading has the long injury history textbook gut wrench suplex for two good stuff from the model here and then he goes into the rick rude style camel clutch thing where he's just kind of sitting on the back and pulling on the chin i've heard it called a reverse chin lock before and that was probably somebody screwing up because that's just a completely different move martell gets a knee to the gut on a charging mr perfect and then a backbreaker again beautifully executed from Martell, and then he goes for the slingshot splash, which was a sometimes finisher of Martell, and also the finisher of the Can Am Connection back at WrestleMania three. But Perfect gets the knees up. Model gets back up, goes to the second rope, but gets caught in the gut with a punch by Mister Perfect. Then an inverted atomic drop by Perfect, and then he pulls the strap down on the singlet. I don't know how effective that is, though, when you have two straps like that. He, he just sort of pulls down one of them. I feel like that would just be uncomfortable. I don't know. And now we get another ad break, and I'm like, uh-oh. Now, this match is kind of famous for, for a reason that I'm going to get to in a second. And I say, uh-oh, because I am reminded of an earlier Greetings from Allentown that I did. As a matter of fact, it was episode 20 for a 1993 wrestling challenge. And I had this to say. I'm sorry, this kind of made me mad to sit through a TV match that runs 15 or 16 minutes when clearly you just could have edited stuff. I mean, are you really going to draw people in next week by saying, well, tune in for the finish of this match next week? I mean, it's a six-man tag. There's really nothing at stake here. It is a little irritating, and I can see what they were kind of going for here. The anything that can happen th- vibe of Monday Night Raw, which I guess they're accomplishing, but perhaps they're also trying to protect Martell if he gets beat during the commercial break. But you, you're just going to show an instant replay of the finish. But first, on the ad break, <laughs> there's an ad for the movie CB4, which is kind of a parody movie that... I never, I never watched at the time, and in that episode back, uh, episode twenty from the where I just played the clip from, I was talking about a bully who went around telling people to vote for Freak Me, 
by Silk as best song for the middle school yearbook. He was also telling people to vote for CB4 as the best movie. <laughs> I, I should go back and find that, but I don't think that's on any streaming service because it's a movie that's kind of forgotten. It's also an ad for Milk. Apparently can help you with the ladies if you listen to the young man in that commercial because he gets a moderately attractive woman, eh, maybe about a six, uh, seven if I'm drunk. Tuesday Night Fights on USA, and then an ad for Matrix, which is coming up next on the USA television network. It, overall, these advertisements, whenever I see an old show with commercials, from the original commercials, are they better than the current ads that you see on Monday Night Raw? I don't know. I haven't watched Raw in quite a while, so I really can't judge on that. And I also changed the channel the second Michael Cole says, as Raw rolls on, as somebody's outside the ring. Perfect's music is playing when they come back from the commercial break, which, again, must have been a shock for somebody watching at the time. And they do show the replay. And Rick Martell makes a cardinal mistake by a ring veteran, and doubly so, considering you've you probably saw Mr. Perfect versus Ric Flair in January on Raw. It was not very long before this, and it is the exact same finish where Martel puts his head down, and Perfect stops and locks in the Perfect Plex for the one-two-three, picking up the win, heading towards his match against the narcissist Lex Luger or Narcissus. Seems like there was an <laughs> they were changing the pronunciation on that quite frequently and billing it as possibly the greatest WrestleMania match of all time, which is a stupid thing to do because it's not going to live up to it the second you put that kind of expectation on there. Lord L with the promotional consideration. G.I. <laughs> Joe seems like 93 is a little late for G.I. Joe, but I have to remember that people were kids after me at some point. So yes, there's still... The same toys from the 80s at that time. <laughs> and Randy Savage for Slim Jim. Chips! He would, he would hate me, the Macho Man, from those ads just for his attitude towards chips. Because I, I love chips. Not just potato chips, but especially, you know, corn chips. Santitas is the official nacho of my household. And to wrap everything full circle for this Raw... The Raw ring card girls who had been hassled by Martel earlier in the show. Now Perfect has beaten him in a match cleanly. He's dispatched him on his way. He brings the two ladies back into the ring. Seems like Perfect always had a lot of women around him in those his 1990s run. Thinking him and Hunter Hearst Helmsley, that whole thing in 1996. Him hanging out with Flair earlier in the 90s. Brings them back. They parade around the ring. And it's nice to have full circle, a full story arc on this show. I feel like I'm watching a sitcom or something. And Rob Bartlett closes with one final thought, looking at Mr. Perfect and these two young lasses. Uh, we got a brand new singing group here, Vince. What's that? Mr. Perfect and Dawn. Well, wait till it dawns on you who we have here for next week's Monday Night i found in doing these shows that I love it when Vince McMahon has no idea of something in popular culture. And Tony Orlando and Don are from the early 70s. It's clear to me either he doesn't know what to do with that joke, which is entirely possible because it's three white people in the ring. And he's making a reference to Tony Orlando and, and Don. I don't know. 
<laughs> Vince not knowing who Urkel was on Action Zone with Todd Pettengill was probably my favorite out of all of them. And that is how they wrap for WWF Monday Night Raw from March 8th, 1993. This is usually the part of the show where I would do YouTube comment theater, but just giving a quick once over at all the comments there there's nothing of any insight at all even by youtube comment standards so i'm going to try something different here i'm going to pull something from the twitter the other day i tease what show i'm going to be releasing next and in this case i wrote and this was on tuesday afternoon 1201 p.m Coming Thursday, WWF Raw from March 8, 1993, and how WrestleMania 9 is sort of like when Tommy got whacked in Goodfellas. And it's a very graphic picture of Pesci with the blood coming out of his head. It's one hell of a screenshot that I was able to grab from somewhere. It was probably off YouTube itself. And a number of different people weighed in with quotes, and it led to what I could only really call Goodfellas Mania 9, which was a mixing of the WWF at WrestleMania 9 with lines from Goodfellas. So without any further ado, here's Goodfellas Mania 9. get this started with Jason Greenhouse of Place to be Nation, who, whose idea it was saying that we need to do a bar, the bar roll call with the WrestleMania 9 roster. And then there was Fuji Two Times, who got that nickname because he said everything twice, like, I'm going to go get the papers, get the papers. Keith Langston, the voice of Greetings from Allentown, replies, Bobby the Brain was the kind of guy that rooted for the bad guys in the movies. Jason Greenhouse again. Right after I got here, I ordered some spaghetti with marinara sauce and I got pasta mania noodles and JR's barbecue sauce. I'm an average nobody. I get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. Joe Marotta of the Our Vantage Point podcast. Now go home and get your fucking titanium face mask. Jason Greenhouse again. <laughs> Picture of the two doinks. I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm an evil clown? I amuse you? Keith Langston. Yokozuna may have moved slow, but it was only because Yoko didn't have to move for anybody. Joe Morata, our Vantage Point podcast. Although it could be Michael Quinn, I'm not sure. It's the show account. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a Hulkster. Jason Greenhouse. Yes, this is dominated by three people. Sure, Linda, I settle down with a nice girl every night that I'm free the next morning. And it's a gift file of Vince McMahon at the 87 Slammies dancing to <laughs> stand back. <laughs> so, yes, uh, as you watch WrestleMania this Sunday, it's a long show. Just think about applying Goodfellas quotes to anything that you see on the show. Uh, because 
Goodfellas makes everything better. Including this segment, because YouTube comment theater has kind of gone off the rails a little bit. So, anyway, my message to everybody is I'm, I'm releasing this show on Thursday. Maybe you've left for WrestleMania if you're going down to New Orleans for that. You know, ha- have fun down there. Do there's There's something for everybody there between Access and... Various independent shows, Ring of Honor's got a show as well, NXT, and the very long WrestleMania show. Just, you know, my my advice is to pace yourself. Hopefully I'll be able to make it to New Jersey next year for WrestleMania 35 or whatever the symbol is that they're going to be using. And hopefully it doesn't snow on (laughs) April 7th next year as it snowed in New Jersey earlier this week, because that would really cause havoc with an outdoor wrestling show. I have no idea what they would do. As for the show next week, just stay tuned to social media, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all that all that good stuff, because I'm kind of undecided. I don't know how much time I'm going to have with certain work things between now and then. I managed to squeeze this in mainly because I'm staying up to insane hours of the night to record and usually I will record in the mornings and some of the show is recorded in the morning it's like everything that I do is recorded like midnight to 2 a.m or 7 a.m to 9 a.m kind of a weird recording schedule probably would be an NWA show I've been looking at a couple of Jim Crockett promotions shows from that 86 to 88 time frame but seems like there's a new generation of videos uh appearing on YouTube lately, a lot of all-star wrestling from the mid-80s, and that's something that's always going to capture my attention. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes, and a couple of more plugs that I have to sneak in here at the end. I believe later today or tomorrow, I will be releasing the next podcast that I've done with Steve Bennett. Our, our group is tentatively called the Adams Division Podcast of Wrestling, which is a little clunky, but you know we have to work in the Adams Division there somehow. And we are ranking WrestleManias from 1 to 14. Not our top 14 WrestleManias, but the first WrestleMania to the 14th WrestleMania. Seeing that that was a good cutoff point, that was the last WrestleMania I actually attended, it reels in a WrestleMania that Steve went to, which was WrestleMania 6 in Toronto. Some funny stories about him going to that show that'll be on the podcast. So look for that soon. And just one more quick plug for my friends, the wrestling podcast about nothing with Mike Crockett and Brian Malonis, who I believe will be down in New Orleans for Ring of Honor this weekend. Uh, Their show just had their 100th episode a couple weeks ago, and they're on a really good run of shows just talking about their experiences in the business. There's a recent one on bad promoters and just the stories about weird, wacky things that have happened in the wrestling business to both of them. So I advise you to check that out as well. And that is it for me here, but do tune in next Thursday for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown.
Gilligan, the skipper to the millionaire and his wife, the movie star. All right, I think, I think we got it, thank you. And the rest, I'm, I think we've got it. All right.